This is a story about someone who grew up in difficult circumstances, felt the results of that, and then figured out what was happening. Is depression funny? I think everything's funny. Because that's one of my coping mechanisms. I mean, I don't think the concept of depression is funny. I don't think it's funny that people are in pain. But I think that you can make anything funny. Is that a bad answer? That's an excellent answer. Oh, that was awful. That was awful. (laughs) It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. The past matters. Childhood matters. What was happening in your living situation during that time, it all matters. And I think our guest would back me up on that. She joined us from a recording studio that she initially found a bit claustrophobic. I'm Whitney Cummings, and I'm in sort of a glorified coffin in Studio City, California. (laughs) Whitney Cummings is a comedian and an actor, writer, producer, director. She's created and starred in network TV shows and released several stand-up specials. Her most recent is on Netflix. It's called Can I Touch It? I love that you guys think that we have no idea that some women are batshit crazy. We know, okay? We know way more shit than you know. We see the text messages she didn't send to you. too crazy to even get to your phone because we're the ones that put a stop to that shit. We're the ones like, no, 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 you're not going to kidnap his mom. Delete it. Delete it. Give me the phone. Just give me the phone. Give it to me. Put the phone down. That's too many bubbles. He hasn't responded in five days. Give me the phone. You're not sending that. You're not going to send an Adele song with six eggplant emojis. Give it to me. Log out now. Whitney grew up in Washington, D.C., and her family had some issues, which means that as an adult, as is the case with anyone who had a bumpy home life growing up, she has to find ways to describe it. Well, there is the Stockholm Syndrome gaslit version, and then there's the actual version. So I'll try to do maybe something somewhere in between. Uh, I grew up with pretty amazing parents. Like, I now know that they did the best they could, and now that I'm an adult, I realize their best was pretty awesome. And I think five, ten years ago, I would have thought they were, like, monsters. Um, But I'm now like, you know what? They kind of held it together. Um, uh, But I did uh, grow up in a home plagued by mental illness and alcoholism, Um, and there was a lot of chaos in the house. There was a lot of adrenaline. There was a lot of cortisol. There was a lot of stress. I had an older sibling uh, who struggled with addiction, and a couple of my family members suffer from borderline personality disorder. And that is a that is a disease that is especially, I think, confusing to kids because something that, you know, made one of your family members laugh one day, the next day will enrage them and make them defensive and feel attacked and criticized. So you're sort of constantly walking on eggshells, never knowing when you're causing a problem um, or not. When there are addiction issues in a home and a mental illness like borderline personality disorder, a kid is probably not getting the nurturing care they need. And then they have to decide, as best they can, because they're kids, how to handle that situation. I developed this, you know, defense mechanism to, like, always just try to make everybody laugh all the time and never be a problem and never have needs and never complain um, and... 
never be a problem, basically, because there was so much chaos and so much stress already that I found the safest thing for me to do was to alleviate stress for others and become a needless caretaker um, instead of someone needy or adding stress to the situation. And obviously, as as every child does, you did have needs, but did you actually believe that that you were fine and that and that you didn't really need anything from anybody? Or did you say, I'm just going to stuff this down? I think I probably wasn't self-aware or conscious enough to know that I was doing it. But for me, it, it and I don't think there was a judgment on it either. I think as a kid, it doesn't occur to you that there's different types of parenting. Like it, yeah. it's you don't know what you don't know. Right. So for me, it was just like, oh, this person isn't helpful when I'm hurt. So I'm just going to keep it to myself because things are just easier that way. You know, I don't think it was like this person's a bad parent, so I'm going to repress my feelings. It was just kind of like, you know, as children, we're so innocent, you know, it's just sort of like if, you know, you put your hand on a stove and it's hot, you don't touch it again. And I think that for me was when I brought my emotional or physical needs to a caretaker who was overwhelmed and stressed out and exhausted and reactive and codependent and borderline and narcissistic asking for help just if it resulted in, well, why don't you go get another parent? Or, well, okay, we're not good enough. Or, you know, any kind of guilt or shame trip, Mm. to me, physical or emotional or basic self-care needs were not as important as not feeling like I was adding stress to my caretakers or guilt to me is just a feeling that was just intolerable. And... I would rather just suck it up than have to feel like I was causing stress to my family. The habits you learn in childhood can stay with you, and they often show up in kind of weird ways down the line. I had this um, this breathing coach recently. I know that sounds like an L.A. fake job, <laughs> but because I have to basically yell for an hour when uh-huh. I do stand-up, right. I was getting these crazy chest infections because I was just breathing wrong. Mm. And uh, I was breathing out of my diaphragm and not my stomach and this, this whole thing. And uh, and the breathing person was like, oh, did you grow up in a hectic alcoholic home? And I was like, how did you know that? She's like, because of the way you breathe. You br- you hold your breath. And you, I can hold my breath for a crazy amount of time. And she's like, did you do a lot of hiding as a kid? And I was like, what? Like, wow. I couldn't believe it, how my breathing had even, um, to, for my whole life, reflected how quiet I always tried to be. Comedy became part of Whitney's life through her dad. And I think because his coping mechanism was make everything a joke, make every, after a big fight, he would make a bunch of jokes and pretend it was all a big performance and, you know, have us watch, you know, Dan Aykroyd movies. My dad looked exactly like Dan Aykroyd. And he would even sign autographs as Dan Aykroyd when I was a kid. What? And Yeah. And so he would pretend he was Dan Aykroyd. I mean, I now realize this is an incredibly traumatic thing to do to a kid. But <laughs> I, we thought it was so funny. Like, I thought he was Dan Aykroyd until I was like 13. I was like, wait a second. <laughs> Two different guys. <laughs> Why do we live in this house if you're Dan Aykroyd? Like, it started to add up. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, he would act out things from movies like Three Amigos. And we would, like, act out movies together. And I think it was a consensual, like, let's pretend that never happened kind of thing. Right, right. And I was so on board with the denial. I was so on board with him with the let's pretend that fight didn't just occur. And we would just be like doing Blues Brothers songs and and watching Three's Company and doing Pratt Falls. And um, I think I really got it 
got it from him. Whitney performed outside the house, too. When she was young, Whitney wanted nothing more than to be a serious stage actor, took acting classes at a prestigious theater school with a prestigious teacher for a while. Then one class, he made us pick an animal and crawl around like the animal, and I was done. And I was like, this is degree. Like, I'm not getting rug burn for you. She didn't sign up to be an animal. She was looking to become a human. But I did like the idea as an actor of not having to pick a personality or, like, um, value system or anything because growing up as an Al-Anon adult child of alcoholic, like, I wasn't really sure who I was. I didn't, because you shapeshift in order to accommodate the sick people, you know? Like, you want Chinese? I love Chinese. You want to, you know, you want to go to the, play tennis? I love tennis. Like, anything to, you know, avoid conflict and make everything okay. So by the time I actually got out of that, I wasn't really sure who I was because I had spent so much time pretending I liked the things that other people liked to reduce conflict. So... For me, acting was like, okay, I get to get attention, but I don't have to know who I am. Isn't that perfect? Right. You know, because if I had to talk about myself, I wouldn't know what to say because I have no idea what I like or who I am. And I, I, so I can't be authentic. So I wasn't ready to be a stand-up comedian because you have to know all that in order to be a stand-up. So I was like, acting is perfect because this writer already picked out all the characteristics this person (laughs) has. So what if I just pretend to have those? And then I was like very much um, learned how to be a person, I think, through acting, because I was like, oh, people, like, make themselves tea if they want some. Like, I I was, like, looking at stage direction, like, oh, she's tired. She's going to take a bath and go to bed. Like, that, what a concept. (laughs) Um, So I kind of learned (laughs) sort of how to be a person through, I now realize, very dysfunctional, like, Tennessee Williams plays. (laughs) I just have to depend on the kindness of strangers, and I'll be fine. Totally. (laughs) I have spent a lot of my life in theaters as a child and as an adult, and there are plenty of healthy, well-adjusted people there. But there are also plenty of folks who aren't that certain of how to navigate as an individual in a confusing world. Theater doesn't solve that, but it's a shelter. It's a break. As Whitney struggled to find herself in a world she couldn't control, she developed eating disorders. I remember when I was a kid, I was so desperate to have a modicum of control over my life that I would, like, only eat, like, dried mangoes for, like, four months. And then I would, like, only eat chicken uh, in a biscuit every night for four. Like, I couldn't deviate to other things, you know? It was, like, the one thing I felt like I could control. Although, in the beginning, it wasn't really about being thin. I didn't know that. And I realized that there's lots of women in my in my family, uh, a generation above me who struggled with eating disorders, which is just such a wild thing to, you know, I think it's just, it doesn't occur to us that our parents could have had something like that. So when I realized like only a couple years ago, I was like, oh, like the women in my family had eating disorder. Like that's such a crazy thing um, to wrap your head around. So I think I got it honestly in that way too. And it was also my way of fitting in with them. Mm -hmm. And I still, you know, to this day, sort of think about what came on its own and what was me just mimicking someone whose approval I wanted um, in the beginning. It doesn't really matter, but I think it's worth looking at. Um, And then by the time I was 14, I was full-blown in terms of anorexia. And mine was very much, I didn't not eat anything, um, but I would eat 
a pretty restricted amount of calories, and then I would run for like three hours. So it's like I would wake up in the morning. I, I would have to exercise after I ate. So that was how mine manifested. Um, and I think a lot of people might not think of that one um, because we like to get very like categorical in eating disorders. We'd like to say like, this person's starving themselves. It's like, yeah, but if you're eating a thousand calories a day and running 20 miles, that's, you're eating, but that doesn't mean you're, you know, healthy. Was it a compulsive thing where when you ate, you're like, I better get rid of these calories right away, better hit the road, start running? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's eating disorders are so pernicious because, you know, it's it's so unconscious, like it's so your value system is so skewed, you know, you are so that. But I was it's also very um, premeditated. So I would never be in a situation where I'd be like, oh, I just ate 50 calories. I should go run. My food was scheduled out in a way that that would never happen. So if I knew I didn't have time to go exercise later, I just wouldn't eat something or I would drink a diet soda. But it was so routinized that 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 room for air. It was my whole world. It was my whole life. So eating disorders, they're so isolating for that reason. Because like, okay, I just were, I just ate, you know, five rice cakes or whatever with jelly or some bullshit, sugar-free, <laughs> just carcinogen. I can't believe that stuff's even on the market. Uh, but I would eat that, and then I would go run, and then I'd come back, and then we'd be like, okay, now I have to prepare my next, f-. you know, it's it becomes like a full-time job. Cycle begins again. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes such a full-time job. And you're, and because I wouldn't eat with other people, your concept of what's, I mean, the word normal is not helpful. I don't think in conversations like this, but your concept of what's functional is just so off the grid. You have nothing to compare your lifestyle to. Um, and I think ultimately, my eating disorder was very much an addiction to being isolated. Were you wanting people to notice your thinness? Was it part of was that part of it? I that's a really good question because for me, I think I learned early on that I got attention if I was in some kind of real danger or pain or if I was like sick. So for me, a little bit of was not necessarily people thinking I looked good. It was people being worried about me. So I think my brain, my baby brain was like, oh, when people are worried about you, you get love. So Mm. keep doing the thing that makes people worried about you. Because I'm just, I really am at the point where it's like, what happened, my past is not up for interpretation. Like, I'm really just trying to figure out the cause and effect and like, be humble to how neurology actually works. So I think that was a big part of it. Um, And then getting attention from the other family member of mine that was anorexic that I was trying very much to be, you know, accepted and loved by. So I was like, okay, if I just do this thing she's doing, we're best friends. Mm. And I look back now and I was literally a size zero. And it was a, a, a very irrational fear. I think people, part of the reason I think eating disorders are so maddening to parents, spouses, you know, mothers, daughters, sisters, brothers, or people that go through it is that that people suffering from a true eating disorder can't see the same way you can see. You want to just go, how do you not see how thin you are? I mean, I remember uh, this psychiatrist put me on a big piece of paper and I had to, and she drew my outline of my body because I was so off the grid in terms of what I looked like. And I remember thinking that she was lying. 
<laughs> I watched her wow. do it. And I was like, no, she's intentionally moving the marker under my leg to try to make like you start thinking people are out to get you. You start think when someone compliments you that they're lying. If someone's worried about you, that you're jealous, like your whole world just inverts. And it's like almost like a form of dyslexia. Um yeah. And then you're starving and you have no brain power because you're not eating anything, you know, so then it becomes, yes. And then it becomes this like snowball effect of I can't think straight because I'm starving and I'm starving because I can't think straight. And so how long did the eating disorders last? Oh, gosh. Um, I have happened to have learned a lot about this, but I try to keep it really specific to me because I know everyone's eating disorder stuff manifests differently and no two cases are the same. But it would have really helped me to hear that, you know, you don't cure, for me, you don't cure an eating disorder because the roots are so deep in the ground, um, the reason you have it. And, you know, for me, it's very much, um, it's embedded in a big way and I can kind of eat whatever I want at this point. Um, But there's still that when I get stressed out, when I get scared, you know, I just had a stand-up special come out. I was anxious. I didn't know if people were going to like it. I wanted to, you know, it to be successful. And I found myself only drinking coffee Mm. for two days and only ordering like steamed spinach. So for me, whenever my life feels out of control, I can't predict something Um, that's when it starts to sort of rear up again. But then I now have the ability to consciously go, I see what you're doing. Right. You know, I'm not responsible for my first thought, but I am responsible for my first action. There's a little bit of gymnastics I have to jump through these days. um, But I am very grateful that I'm past the point where I'll like unconsciously sort of obsess and starve myself. And I don't think people understand that for people with eating disorders, it's a 24-hour obsession And it's, what did I just eat? What am I about to eat? What did I eat two days ago? What's in that? Let me read the ingredients. What's he eating? Why is she eating that? Does she work out? Like, it's 24-7 taking up real estate in your brain. So if I find myself in that place at all, I get really, you know, motivated to get out of it because I've lost, I've just lost so much time obsessing about food. This might come as a surprise, but there's a sadness, I think, that comes with feeling healthier mentally. You uncover some truths, you accept them, and that lets you stop doing all the frantic things that you've been doing for so many years to run from the problems in your mind, the facades you've been putting up, the compulsive illusions that you think are tricking everyone into thinking you're okay when you're not. And when all that stuff falls away, you start to realize all the time you've lost, all the things you've missed out on, relationships, opportunities, wisdom, peace. It's sad. It's a sign you're getting better, but it's sad. Coming up, okay, so that's the childhood. What happens when Whitney Cummings carries all these issues into adulthood? Well, success and fame, but what else? The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illnesses, not just depression, but all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having a lot of laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with depression, maybe demystifying it a little bit, making it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. This is a serious illness. The good news is that people can and do recover. They get help. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. 
It can be an awkward conversation, but makeitokay.org is full of information you can use, what to say and what not to say, and stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org where you can take the pledge to make it okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. Hello, Thwadballs. In case you missed the news, I have written a book called The Hilarious World of Depression. Should be an easy title to remember. It's a memoir with a lot of stuff from the show and how the show came to exist. I think it would be a good thing to own. The Hilarious World of Depression, the book, will be released in May, but you can pre-order now at hilariousworld.org. Back with Whitney Cummings. Here she is from her 2014 album, I Love You. Like, I feel like guys drive down the street, and this is pretty much what goes on in your mind. Driving down the street, just in your car. (laughs) Tree. (laughs) Tree. Damn, she's got big tits. Right? It's, there's no emotion. It's just like thing, thing, stuff, thing, thing, stuff, thing. But for me to drive down that same street, nightmare. Stress, memories, emotions, triggering, so much drama. For me to drive down that same street, it's like, oh my God, look at that tree. My ex-boyfriend had a tree in his yard. Oh my God. I miss him so much. Oh, look at that tree. That tree's thinner than me. What the fuck? I hate trees. (laughs) Who's this bitch with the big tits? (laughs) Like, that's just to get to Rite Aid. It's just a saga. In 2004, Whitney Cummings graduated from the University of Pennsylvania and moved to L.A. where she started doing stand-up. Now, often you hear about someone spending 10 or 15 years learning the craft of comedy, struggling in obscurity. But Whitney Cummings was a hit, pretty fast. She was named a comic to watch by Variety in 2007. By 2008, she's a regular panelist on Chelsea Lately. She was a success. I had such intense perfectionism, uh, and I had no idea that success didn't solve your emotional problems. Uh, You tried to achieve your way out of it. Yeah. And it was just like, oh, this accolade will do it. This award will do it. And it didn't do it. And I was like, wait, that didn't, wait a minute. I've been banking on these achievements solving my, you know, basically I'm trying to get internal needs met with external things. No one told me that didn't work, you know. So I think it, it's um, extra <laughs> frustrating when you're like, I just got the Tonight Show, you know, my insomnia is going to disappear. Like, I had these very uh, delusional expectations, you know, for, um, you know, what success was going to do for me. You know, I got a TV show, right? Now my mom won't drink. Like, it's just like, what? The achievements didn't fill her checking account either. You can be and I wasn't famous, but you can be famous and broke. You know, you can be getting awards and achievements, but also not being able to pay your bills. So I think for me, it was extra confusing that I was like on TV, but in debt. So I was like, I felt extra played and like the world was out to get me and that 
this was like some cruel prank. And I did realize early on, though, that financial security is a big part of my emotional security. And I don't mean that in terms of like like wealth, like because I think a certain amount of pursuing wealth is sick. Um, but I did realize how much financial anxiety I carried um, because, yeah, I mean, well, when I got that early success, I was doing focus groups for money. Yeah. So it was almost like, oh, I have these added expenses of having to, like, go to red carpets and hire a publicist, but I can't feed myself. <laughs> so it was sort of like I was totally, uh, it, I was, like, in over my head. Whitney used some of that experience being broke to create a sitcom, Two Broke Girls. It got picked up and premiered in 2011, the same year as Whitney a sitcom created by and starring Whitney Cummings. She went from doing focus groups for rent money to having two shows debut the same year. Now, very few people will ever sell one show. She had two in the same season. This is from Whitney. Wait, you're going to wear a hoodie to a wedding? <laughs> what, were your overalls in the wash? <laughs> okay, I almost froze to death at Nick and Rachel's wedding. You mean the one that was in Mexico? <laughs> Where the groomsmen wore shorts? How dare you? You know that I have bad circulation, and it got worse after I got laser hair removal for you. All right, come on, we really gotta go. So, yeah, I didn't know what I didn't know. Um, I did have a very big Al-Anon rock bottom in terms of hiring and working with people. I had no idea how to pick co-workers. I thought you hire people that you have, like, the best chemistry with who, like, make you laugh and are charming, which mm. I now know charm is a red flag. I know. <laughs> I was a mess. And so I was also so bogged down with interpersonal draw. I also didn't know about boundaries. Um, I didn't know that if someone crosses a line or is inappropriate at work, you just fire them. Like, I was like, we talk through it. Uh, uh, like, yeah. let's, like, what can I, how do I make this environment safer for you? Because you're a peacemaker, right? It totally. I was like, People pleaser, so unctuous, thought everything was my fault, also felt guilty. I didn't surround myself with people that were happy for me. I didn't understand. I, I surrounded myself with people that had the most experience possible because I thought that that was going to make me feel safe and held. And in reality, when you hire people that have been on shows for 20 years, they kind of just resent this 26-year-old who has a show. They're like, why am I working for you? Like, I just... I didn't understand human nature in the slightest you at that time. You were hiring caregiving parents, weren't you? I was basically <laughs> hiring people that I thought were going to... Um, Give you love and attention. Be an adult. Yeah. Exactly right. That's right. And we gravitate towards people who have the negative qualities of our primary caretakers. And so I ended up just hiring a lot of those people and wasting a ton of time feeling guilty, apologizing to people oh. when I didn't do anything wrong, walking on eggshells. Like, I just recreated my childhood circumstances. Wow. Um, but at least got paid to do it. Yeah. So that's a step <laughs> at least up. It came with checks this at time. At <laughs> least I was able to pay my rent. Two Broke Girls ran for six seasons. Whitney, the show, lasted only one. Since then, Whitney Cummings has been gathering wisdom and learning some hard truths. Like, if you grew up in a toxic environment as a kid, you're likely to steer into toxic environments as an adult. A lot of the things that I was attracted to in employees, I realized were red flags. Like, if in a meeting, my favorite thing in the world to do was to gossip about their previous bosses. Mm -hmm. 
and, oh, my God, how bad was this person? How terrible was this person? They'd go, oh, they were so terrible. Oh, this person was awful. And we'd be like, ah, just gossiping. Oh, my God, we're so similar. Look at us just gossiping about this person. We both feel so much better because we're judging this person. And we both, you know, we bond over what we dislike, right? Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize until later, like, that is the biggest red flag. Like, someone who comes into a meeting and and, and shit talks their previous bosses. because yeah. guess like, who you're going to be next. Yes. Yeah. So I, I just, it's things like, you know, that I think for me were just not obvious. I just, I was never parented to look for red flags. I was never parented to learn that charm is... Um, being charming is a verb. It's mm-hmm. not an adjective. Um, so it took me a really, you're being charmed. Yeah. And if you're really qualified, you don't have to come in and sort of, you know, gaslight me into hiring you or we don't have to trauma bond. Or right. And it also, it was really also on me to not overshare with people. That's one of the biggest things I've learned because I think for so long, because I come from a home of a lot of lies and I never wanted to lie because I saw how much Ravik it hacked. How much. <laughs> You're heeking Ravik. <laughs> Weed is legal in California. Have you noticed? <laughs> yeah, really? Uh, how much. When I say havoc, I've wreaked re- yeah. yeah. of a havoc. How many problems? I got saw made? how bad lying was. <laughs> Let me just stick to basic words that I can actually say. Um, And I never wanted to lie. And I thought the antithesis of lying was telling everybody everything all the time. And I had just gotten to a 12-step program where I learned, like, oh, you, like, admit your flaws and you talk about your character defects. And if you did something you're ashamed of, you tell someone about it because you're only as sick as your secrets. Like, I was just so high on this tell-every-be-honest thing that I didn't quite understand that there's a, you know, restraint of pen and tongue and you do it with safe people and not with someone you're interviewing for a job five minutes in. You don't tell them about your childhood. So I was oversharing with people and getting this false sense of connection, you know. So I think it's taken me a long time to be very mature about what I share with people. I mean, even my current relationship, I didn't share stuff about my childhood to like six months in because I didn't want him to feel guilty. I didn't want to attract someone who was a caretaker, rescuer. I didn't want to be with someone who wanted to fix me or be a hero by being with the broken girl. Like Uh I was just like, I don't want you to see any of this until we're together because I don't want anyone to feel sorry for me. And I don't want to accidentally have like power because I can't believe I'm admitting all this to you. I used (laughs) to use that very irresponsibly. I used to weaponize my trauma with people because it made me feel like they couldn't abandon me. Right. There was a lot of like, but I had this childhood. And then, you know, like you play it as a card when you're immature. Trying to claim Um, some power, too. Yeah, that's right. So how did Whitney Cummings start figuring these things out, these tendencies toward destructive relationships and bad choices? Well, the turn started when a close relative went into rehab. And Whitney showed up to, as she saw it, help. And I would go every day <laughs> and bring, like, Nutrigrain bars and, like, gifts. And the therapist there, uh, who is brilliant and I still go to today, she's like, um, so w- what what are you doing? <laughs> she was like, why are you here? And I was like, oh, no, I'm bringing food. She's like, we provide food. And I was like, yeah, but i just bringing clothes. She's got enough clothes. And I was like, no, 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 but I'm just coming, like, to hang out. She's like, y- you're going to... 
um, she said it very clearly. She said, if you keep doing this and enabling this person, you're just helping her die faster. And it blew my mind because I was like, but I'm an angel. What are you talking about? Like, unrecovered Al-Anons, we are martyrs and we just kind of think we're the best until we realize that we are, that people pleasing is actually a form of assholery and it's can be a manipulation and it's very much just us trying to manage our own guilt and needing to obsess over someone else and rescue someone else for that like dopamine hit of feeling like meaningful or important. I really love this person incredibly deeply, but my concept of what love is was so warped. Like, like this is what Alan on explained to me, like the three M's, mothering, micromanaging, and martyring. And that was me to a T. I'm going to mother adults that have cars. Uh-huh. Like, it was just like, why am I bringing this person yogurt? I remember one time I was dating a guy who's kind of successful in Hollywood and he had an assistant. And I remember going to pick up his dry cleaning, which he didn't ask me to do. And they were like, oh, his assistant just picked it up. And I was like, I'm literally think a relationship is this being someone's being assistant. Being an assistant. Wow. That's, all I, that's literally all I knew. So that's what she explained to me. She's like, well, if this if this person doesn't do all this stuff on their own, if you keep doing it for them, then she doesn't have any pride. And you're taking away her ability to be proud of herself and to learn coping mechanisms. You're actually stopping this person from growing because you're smothering this person. And I just was like so unable to tolerate the discomfort of someone else that I had to keep meddling and intervening. And she had to explain to me, like, you need to learn how to give other people the dignity of their own experience. And I so did not understand what that meant. Like, someone else has an experience without me? Like, I couldn't understand what she was saying. So I heard about al from her, and I was like, I know who needs that. Someone else. <laughs> and I called a friend of mine who's in a program, and I was like, you know what you need? Al-Anon. And he was like, uh, okay, do you want to come with me? And I was like, sure, I'm because I'm an angel. Uh, yes, right. I will accompany you Just to, to make Al-Anon sure you get there. You to know. make sure you're okay. <laughs> Al-Anon Family Groups describes itself as a worldwide fellowship that offers a program of recovery for the families and friends of alcoholics. Al-Anon is not an abbreviation for Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a different organization. And we've talked about Al-Anon on this show before. A lot of our guests have been helped by it tremendously. So I go to Al-Anon. I remember it. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was eight years ago. And this Got this speaker who, to this day, said every that I think every time I see him, he because I spent the first fifteen minutes looking around at people judging their outfits, <laughs> and because Alanons, we are very judgmental people that masquerade as the nicest people on the planet, judgmental, controlling. Um, and he was like, "All right, newcomers, I know you're just looking around at everybody's shoes," and I was just like, "Oh my god, that's exactly what I'm doing. How did he know that?" <laughs> And then he start because it's like, God forbid, I actually try to take in what they're saying and not focus on other people. And he said something. He's like, okay, here's the deal. Uh, here's the deal. Anyone that came from an alcoholic home, raise your hand. We all raise our hand. He goes, all right. So the good news is the war is over. And the bad news is that you lost. <laughs> and it was just like, it was just the, per- it was just what I needed to hear. The war is over. You lost. 
And he went on to explain about how we're all just kind of carrying weapons around that we really needed 20 years ago, but the war is over and we're still kind of like looking behind every tree, you know, for the person that's going to hurt us. And it's really just about putting down the weapons and um, creating new ways of coping because we're still... I mean, I just related so much. I was like, that's right. I am fighting a battle that's been over for 25 years. So Al-Anon was great, healthy, well-established, honest. And Whitney goes forth. And, well... And then I spent the... (laughs) And then, classic me, uh, the first year I was in Al-Anon, I used it to, like, try to control people and Mm. win fights. Um... I'd be like, well, I'm an Al-Anon, so like to, I use it to further victimize myself and be self-righteous. So it took like a year to shake out of that ego trip. Uh-huh. Um, and then I was like, and then after a year I was on my knees and I was like, oh, cause I actually got worse for a little while when I was in Al-Anon in the beginning. Um, cause my brain managed to contort the principles of Al-Anon as a way to lord over people. Um, so many people don't understand that, that you know, the, the, what happens to you when you're a kid, and this is what people make fun of in regard to actually improving your mental health. Like, oh, you didn't get enough love as a kid? Like, well, fuck, no. <laughs> and, and, and that actually really, you know, that forms who you are. So it's not about the incidents themselves. It's about the patterns that they create. Totally. And the ridges, you know, we talk in Alan a lot about the grooves, the yeah. ridges in your brain. They're like train tracks, you know, it's yep. like it's not always conscious. It's like you've got these grooves in your brain that are going to take at least 28 days to break. And, you know, for me, what's such a miracle about Alan, it's like just getting rid of old habits. It's like you've been smoking for 15 years. Like, yeah, you're going to reach for your purse, you know, at the same time every day or your back pocket. It's like, you know, after you've been using your cell phone for a while, when you just, you know, when you just touch your pocket just to grab it, even if you don't, it's the same thing. So then what do you do when your grooves were made all wrong and you've been paying for it your whole life? If you're Whitney Cummings, you get to work changing those grooves. Before Al-Anon, like, I had no idea that... thoughts weren't true. I had no idea that feelings weren't facts. I had no idea that I was responsible for my own safety. I had no idea I was responsible for feeding myself three times a day. It was just like, it was, I had to have such an extreme reparenting because my ability to self-deprive and my drug really was focusing on other people and putting myself in really dramatic, chaotic situations because that was just like what I was used to. Um, I just had no idea. I had no idea how to take responsibility for my part. Like, I had no idea to be like, hey, I'm sorry. I overcommitted and I'm late. I would like be like, well, traffic was crazy. I was that person. I was like, well, uh, I'm the only person who's ever driven anywhere. And <laughs> In Los all the cars conspired against me. <laughs> it's a miracle I'm alive. Like I was just, I didn't realize how selfish it was to only obsess over other people and say yes to everyone. Like I didn't, I thought I was just the best because I would go to three parties a night Three engagement, of you know, baby showers every Sunday. Anytime someone asked me to do something, I would say yes. I'm hiking with four people, you know, but then I'm late for all of them because I'm overcommitting and don't know how to say no because I'm too afraid of, you know, losing someone or being abandoned or them feeling rejected or feeling bad or whatever. And so I uh, had no idea how to say, hey, I totally misjudged how long it would take to get here. I really apologize and I'm late. Yeah. 
I couldn't even do it. Did you say yes to being on this podcast just because you felt like you couldn't say no? Well, actually, it's even worse (laughs) than that. (laughs) It's actually even worse than that. I'm going to tell you. Okay. I Because I, like a couple months ago, I was like, okay, I'm going to take a break from podcasts. Like <laughs> people are sick of me. I talk too much. I always feel bad when I leave a podcast because I never feel like I'm funny enough. I'm just going to stop doing podcasts. And then my publicists were like, no, this is a big one. You need to do this one. And I was like, okay, I'm in. Um, as long as I can reach the maximum number of strangers, I will totally undo my boundary. There are a lot of words to describe Whitney Cummings. Talented, hilarious, insightful. And one of the words also is codependent. That's the one she's been working on a lot. Being, like, basically unable to tolerate the discomfort of others. And when other people are uncomfortable, are you uncomfortable too? It's can you differentiate the states of other people from your own state? Can someone be a crying, upset mess and you be okay? Can your boyfriend be mad at you and storm out and you continue to function? Like, are you reactive to other people's emotional states, choices, and behavior? Do you obsess over trying to control other people's behavior and emotional states? So to me, that's like, it's a pretty big deal. (laughs) That's a pretty big obstacle in family life, in parenting, in dating, in marriage, in work in leisure, in everything. Have you had trips ruined because the person you were with was in a bad mood and you can't differentiate their mental state from your own mental state? Like, you know, I look back and I look at all the time I've lost because I was not able to um, sort of be in my own container. I was just um, influenced by the emotional states of others constantly. And that's a, that's a, that's a pretty big loss in your life if that's something you have. Um, I also, a great way to find out if you're codependent is if you do a lot of things out of obligation. Um, I found myself, the language I used, the language I heard growing up was, we got to go to this event. We got to stop by for five minutes. We got to go to this birthday. We can't not go. What, are we going to not go? And it's like, yeah. The codependency was making Whitney do everything for other people to take on everyone's emotional life in this compulsive way. And it took a toll on her that went well beyond thoughts and feelings. In I was had pneumonia, I remember. I had adrenal fatigue, which I know is kind of a, I don't know how real that is, but I was like, I mean, I thought I had mono, but I couldn't, I couldn't get up for like three months. Um, I got... I mean, just crazy. I was, I broke my shoulder. I mean, I sort of outline in the book that I wrote about this, all the physical ailments um, that I got uh, from being codependent, overextending myself, not being able to say no, not being able to admit my own limitations or ask for help. And, you know, people in AA, you know, it's very clear in NA, Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholic Anonymous, what the danger is to yourself. I drank and drove. Right. I I got in a car while I was high and got in an accident. Whereas, you know, alcoholics drink and drive, Al-Anon's text and drive. Just as dangerous. 
just it's the same thing. So we're putting ourselves in dangerous situations without being inebriated. <laughs> so uh-huh. it's actually even more confusing in a way because your drug of choice can just be in your hand or in your pocket all the time. If you're about to pick up and text uh, ex-girlfriend who's destructive or the mom that keeps hurting your feelings and you keep saying you're not going to call back, but you do. Or picking up your phone in the car while you're driving because you're so obsessed with responding to that text because you don't want that person to think you're not responding or you're so desperate to be friends with that person that you're going to pick up the phone. Whitney's career is going great. She has a new Netflix special, Can I Touch It?, that is really funny. And it goes to some surprisingly deep and fascinating places about sex robots. She's also engaged. Her personal relationships are easier now. It helped me to delineate the difference between helping someone and service. You can be of service if you're not keeping score, because that was the other thing I did, is I would do all these things to try to get in the good graces of someone or ingratiate myself with them. But then they all of a sudden don't don't come to my birthday dinner. And I'm like, whoa, I just, I bought you two candles, you know? And it was this leisure you keep in your head where you're like, oh, if I behave a certain way, I'm promised their love and friendship. Yeah. 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 And I realized how much of that I was I was kind of doing. I liked Whitney Cummings, and I told her so. Whitney, this was such a great interview, and, and I really love your work. And, Thanks. Uh, it's just Thank fantastic. I, I really, Thanks for making this show. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I've, I get to talk with amazing people about their innermost secrets. You know, what's what's You really do. You've just got a lot out of me. I don't, <laughs> I, I'm not sure if I want this to air. <laughs> this is a bad idea. It's horrible. Here's some more from Whitney's special, Can I Touch It? Maybe some people don't understand that when you get harassed at a young age, you might not even put together that that's what's occurring until later in life when you're an adult. That was one of my experiences. When I was 19 years old, I got a job as an extra in a television show. And the first day I was there, the director, who was at least 65 years old, invited me into his trailer for lunch. So I go into his trailer, and I know what you're thinking, why did you go into his trailer? Because I was an idiot. I was 19 years old. No one had told me trailers were bad. There was a lot of shit I didn't know. I also thought clear bra straps were clear. Um, I also thought that lady living with my aunt was her roommate. I also thought guys could be allergic to latex. There was a lot of shit I hadn't figured out yet. Don't blame me. So of course I go into his trailer. Out of nowhere, he just lunges at me. I didn't understand what was happening because he was so much older than me. I thought he fell. I was like, are you okay? Oh my God. Are you passing away? What's happening? No idea what to do with that story. I don't remember the guy's name, but the good news is I did accidentally stumble upon a great way to deal with harassment at work from a creepy guy. Just pretend you think he's having a medical emergency. (laughs) Next time a guy's like, hey, sweetie, want to get a drink later? Just go, oh! The Hilarious World of Depression is a production of American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Christina Lopez is a producer for all things digital and several things analog. Phyllis Fletcher helps us out with her editorial expertise. 
Our recording engineer is Eric Stromstad. Our technical director, John Miller. Our theme song was written and performed by Rhett Miller. No relation. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. It's free, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 1-800-273-8255. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and makeitok.org. Make It Okay is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illnesses. MakeItOK.org has information that can help you and your loved ones. Starting a conversation on this topic can be awkward. Make It Okay has tips on what to say, what not to say. It has stories of hope from people who've been there. You can take the pledge to Make It Okay at MakeItOK.org. Hilariousworld.org is our web home. We're also on Twitter. Come visit us on Facebook, too. A lot of great conversation there with your fellow thwadballs. New shows being formed over there. Ideas getting kicked around. It's a good place to hang out. On our next episode, Mara Wilson was a movie star as a child, which created problems in middle school. Because middle school is the worst. There were people that that knew and understood around me, and... I didn't really feel like it was the biggest deal. And you did actually get competitive competitions sometimes, like like I was in children's movies, so uh, I was teased at school because the stuff I was in was babyish. But the kids who were in Gap ads and were models, they were the cool ones in our school. <laughs> I'm John Moe. Bye now. This great big smile is just for show. Sad clown, tell me something I don't know. Would you say I'm a sad clown? Tell me something I don't know.